Good evening. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, we ask for the peace of Christ to fill us and to cover us. Would you help us to believe that Christ is risen and that his life is offered to us? Would you pour out your spirit on us? Amen. So this passage, our gospel passage from John 20, is loaded with really interesting questions. Right? So questions like, how does a man who has pierced hands and feet and a hole in his side walk through a locked door? Or how are we supposed to think about Jesus breathing out his spirit? Is this the same as Pentecost? Is this different? Or what does it mean for God to give people the authority to forgive sins, the authority to declare God's forgiveness? Who was even in that room? Was it the 12? Was it more than the 12? A lot of questions in here. But what I want us to really focus on this evening is just this one simple phrase that Jesus says three times. Before we do that, I'm going to move this. I should have done that first, but I'm dancing around it so I can see stuff. There we go. Okay. This one phrase that Jesus says, peace be with you. There's a lot woven into that because peace is something that surfaces all throughout the Bible. It's a thread that's woven all throughout Scripture. I want us to take a look at a few different angles of that and to really settle in one. Now, one part of this that we see in this peace is a peace between God and his people. So you might have noticed one of the kind of strange things about this story is that Jesus appears and he shows the disciples his hands and his feet, and then the disciples are glad. The way that John tells it makes it almost seem like there's a pause. Like at first, maybe they're not glad. And part of that maybe might be a little bit understandable because they're in a locked room and Jesus just died. Like then he's here. And so they don't really know what's going on. They're a little bit shocked. But I suspect that there's another element to that as well, which is that the disciples remember Friday. They remember Good Friday. And they remember that when Jesus was arrested, they scattered. They went straight into hiding. And they're still scared. Even after they've heard from the women who actually went to the empty tomb earlier in this chapter, and from Mary Magdalene who saw Jesus in the garden, they heard that the tomb was empty. They heard that Jesus was risen. But they're still scared. It may very well be that when they see, when they see Jesus there, knowing their own fear and knowing that they've abandoned him, that they might be a little bit nervous. They might wonder, has Jesus come here with good news or has he come here in anger? And if he's here in anger, what do we do? I think it's beautiful that Jesus doesn't come in anger or retribution, but rather, very clearly and distinctly, he comes proclaiming God's peace. He says, peace be with you. This is peace between God and his people. It's a peace that the Old Testament pointed to in the sacrificial system, with the sacrifices of atonement. It's a peace that the prophets pointed to when they kept saying, God's going to do something new to reconcile his people to himself. But here it is on the other side of the cross in the resurrection. 
this very customary Jewish greeting. One that they still say today in Hebrew, Shalom Aleichem. You can hear it in movies. If you go to Israel, you hear it all the time. Is one that right here is actually said on the day of the resurrection. It's got a meaning it's never had before. God has accomplished peace with his people in Jesus. Good news on Easter. And good news for us, too. Right? So have you ever actually kind of felt yourself knowing what you've done, knowing your shame and your guilt, knowing your sin, shrinking from the presence of God, wanting to run or hide? That's what the disciples are doing. And to that, Jesus says, peace. God has made peace. There's another element to it. These disciples are here and they're hidden. They've locked themselves up because they're afraid of a world that is chaotic, violent, hostile to them. They're afraid because there are those that would do them harm. And they want to keep themselves safe. There's a pattern throughout Jesus' ministry. Think about Jesus rebuking the storm so that it calms down, bringing peace to that chaos. Think of the times when Jesus has healed, where he's given sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf. He's given the paralyzed the ability to walk. He's cleansed the lepers. Remember the times when it's spiritual chaos, when someone has been possessed by demons, he's cast them out. There's a pattern all throughout Jesus' ministry of bringing peace where there's chaos. So when Jesus comes here to these disciples who are afraid of what's out there, afraid of what's outside those doors, he says, peace. He doesn't just say peace. He actually then gives them a mission. He even breathes his spirit onto them to say, you have nothing to fear. You can go out with the authority of God himself, even into this world that is chaotic, because I send you, because I've conquered death. I've risen from the grave, and with my spirit comes my power and this authority to proclaim God's forgiveness. You can go. He takes their fear and their hiding, and he flips it inside out, and instead sends them away, sends them off for a mission. Again, can't we see ourselves in the disciples' shoes there? Because how often do things like the insecurity that comes with money or just this constant confrontation that we have with death and sickness and injury, or just our own securities about the ways that we're using our lives, or all the other anxieties and stresses that come with that, we are reminded constantly and without end that we are actually weak and vulnerable. And that even something as simple as a bonk on the back of the head could be it for us. We're frail. But even so, Jesus says, peace. He sends us out with the reminder that he has conquered death, just like he sends out these disciples. So we see in the disciples that God, that Jesus has come proclaiming peace with God for his people, proclaiming peace even in the middle of a world that is broken and hostile and chaotic. But the one that I want us to settle on, maybe lies even deeper and closer, nearer to us. Remember, the disciples that have locked themselves in this room, even before they, Jesus had appeared, had heard from Mary, from Mary Magdalene, that she had seen Jesus in the garden. They had heard that Jesus had risen from the dead. And yet their hearts are filled with fear and doubt. They've still locked themselves away. Oh, 
oh man, sweet Thomas, our friend, that we can maybe really identify with, has heard it not just from, from Mary and the women who went to the empty tomb, but all of his best friends said that a week ago when you weren't here, Jesus came and we saw him and he spoke to us and we saw the holes in his hands and feet and side. And Thomas still doesn't believe. Can you imagine the turmoil that is in Thomas's heart? The unrest that is on Thomas's inside. After all that had gone on on that weekend, when all of his hopes had been dashed and he was filled with disappointment because his Lord had died. And when he had heard these stories, it had to have been trying to work through like the hope, the hope that Jesus really was alive, but at the same time, the disappointment. And just the disbelief that that horrible crucifixion, all of its consequences could just be wiped away like that. This peace that Jesus brings to the heart he sums up in those words to Thomas. Do not disbelieve, but believe. When Jesus says, peace be with you this third time, we see Jesus bringing peace. Peace to the darkness and chaos of just upset hearts. Jesus bringing peace. I mean, if we can identify with the disciples needing to see this, this peace made with God because they had seen their own shame and their own guilt. If we can see ourselves with the disciples afraid of all the things that could press us around us, how much more can we see ourselves here? Do you not feel doubts or distractions or stresses or anxieties pulling at your own heart? I've been really moved as I've been preparing for these young adult Bible studies on James that we're starting in a few days. They're really moved by, I guess it's a comparison that James makes. James starts off his letter by saying, rejoice, even in trials and difficult circumstances, because you know that God is working these out to strengthen your faith. He doesn't want to make little of those, of those circumstances or of those trials. But what he is going to do several times throughout the letter is say, as hard as those things are, your real enemy, your real danger, it's not the things that are outside you. It says in chapter 4, you, know, you, you fight and you quarrel because your passions or your desires are at war within you. There's another part where he says, don't be like someone who doubts because someone who doubts is double-minded. When you're double-minded, you just get blown around wherever the wind wants you to go. James's point, what James wants us to see, is that we are broken on the inside. So your passions are at war within you. Do you ever think of your heart as a war ground? Not even where other forces are at war trying to take your heart, but that your own heart is divided. And because your own heart is divided, there are these competing desires, competing wants, and competing wills that are pulling in every single different direction. If it ever feels like you're stuck and you can't go anywhere, it's because of that. It's because your will's broken. You want so many different things, and those things are fighting each other because you can't have them all at the same time. They're fighting for possession of your heart, fighting for possession of your will, fighting to take the wheel that's going to drive your life. And you can think of that as the reasons why we can't ever satisfy our own desires. Part of it is because so often the things that we want are just too shallow. 
but we can't even bring ourselves to want those things wholeheartedly because we are creatures that are double-minded or triple-minded or quadruple-minded or just, just expand out however far you want to. Our will is at war with itself. So can't you see that when you pray? I thought about this morning. I was praying and trying to prepare for this, and I got a notification on my phone that Wendy's was giving away free chicken nuggets, and I was gone. How quickly can even a time... And that's a desire that does not satisfy itself. They're Wendy's chicken nuggets. It's extruded meat. It's not good. How quickly can things that are so shallow and so useless draw the attention of our will, captivate our heart? I mean, how many times have you felt when you prayed that you wanted to be with God and to talk with Him and to hear Him and to listen to Him, but desires and anxieties and wants and just distractions driving your mind towards everything else but where you wanted to go? Praying feels like herding cats so often when your desires throw you in every single direction. But here, Jesus, the people with scattered, upset, distracted, turbulent hearts, hearts that believe or at least want to believe but just can't give themselves over completely to the idea that Jesus has risen. Right? Jesus has come back a second time and they're locked in the room again. He came one time and stood with them and said, peace be with you, twice, breathed his spirit on them, and a week later, later they're in the same place. Like we read this great story in Acts 3 of, G- of Peter boldly proclaiming. That's later. It takes him a while. It takes him a while to get out of the locked room. Jesus has to come and appear twice. Even so, to those scattered hearts that are struggling to believe, even to our own scattered hearts that struggle to give ourselves wholeheartedly to him. Even to those hearts that feel like they could only be calmed if Jesus speaks to it like he spoke to the storm. Or even to those hearts that feel like they could only be calmed if Jesus reaches in and touches it like Thomas touched his wounds. Even to those hearts that seem like they could only be stilled if God just reached down and took them for himself. Even to those hearts here, Jesus says, peace be with you. It is worth noting that this peace doesn't always look like the kind of peace we would pray for or ask for ourselves. You can see this peace at work in Jesus' life and in his ministry. I would say, I'd argue, that this peace is actually the most clearly visible. You can see it the most plainly when you see Jesus sweating drops of blood in the garden. When you see Jesus saying to his Father, not my will, but thine be done. Because right there, you see more clearly than I think you can see anywhere else, a heart that is singularly given over to the purposes and will of God. A heart that has entirely given itself over to God's love for the world. When Jesus is in the garden, sweating blood, there are no competing desires in his heart. His will is not fractured. He's not scattered. He knows the will of his Father, and he won't turn away for it, from it for anything. <coughs> even when he's tempted by Satan, even when he is scourged by whips, even when he's crying, 
even when he's nailed to a cross. He is at peace. That's peace. Because he wants one thing. He's given himself over entirely to the will of God. He has leapt with all of his heart into that one thing. So when Jesus appears proclaiming peace three times and showing the disciples the holes in his hands and in his feet, those holes are not just the means by which he gained that peace for them, even though it is. Those holes are the marks of the peace that was within him. Those holes are the marks that prove that he would not do anything else but what he came there to do. Those holes are the marks of someone who has given himself over entirely to the will of God. They're the marks of obedience. That's the peace that Jesus proclaims, the peace that he offers, the peace that he gives us, the peace of obedience even through the most horrifying of external trials. Remember what James said, not double-minded, but singularly given over to what God would do singularly given over to the task that was given to him. Now, I do have to say that thinking through this and preparing for this, I've had to struggle with this a lot. Because there's an element to this, talking about peace on the inside, about being singularly given over to God's will, that can feel like pointing us to somewhere that I haven't really been. Because to say I'm at peace on the inside feels like really outkicking my coverage. So here's where I felt comfort. It's the comfort that Jesus actually gives his disciples here. It's just a reminder that this peace is not the peace that comes from us or the peace that we make for ourselves. It's Jesus' peace. It belongs to him. He gives it. Remember, the disciples had heard from the women who were at the tomb from Mary Magdalene. And they had even seen Jesus himself in that room, and they're still locked away. Thomas has heard the story over and over and over again at this point, and he still doesn't believe. And even to these people who are still afraid, even to this guy who still doubts, Jesus says, peace be with you. He's patient. He doesn't come in anger or in retribution or come for revenge. He's just patient. So don't be alarmed. We really aren't like them. But even in the midst of our own resistance or our hard-heartedness or our just struggles to believe, our struggles to receive this peace, just know that it's not a hidden peace. It's not an elusive peace. Jesus doesn't have both hands behind his back and he says, guess which peace my, which, hey, my peace is in. He's not playing games. But what we see is that Jesus is pouring it out, pouring out this peace, breathing out his spirit on his people. But don't be alarmed at your own hard-heartedness, but rather just see him proclaiming peace over and over and over again, even to your own tired heart. Know that even when you do struggle to believe, know that when your heart is scattered, when you feel like you're chasing after a dozen things, none of which can satisfy. When your praying feels like herding cats, 
still. Jesus praises peace. We need the reminders over and over again because that's just because we do. Because we're just like those disciples. As comical and as absurd as that story seems, sometimes we're like them. And so even now, would you be reminded of this peace? We're going to proclaim it to each other before we take the Eucharist. This peace is present and proclaimed again in the prayers that we're going to say together. Take it with your hands and the bread and the wine. Taste it. Over and over again to the disciples and to us, Jesus says, peace be with you. Let your scattered, turbulent hearts be still. Because Christ has conquered death. Christ has broken the power of sin. Christ was wholeheartedly obedient where we are not. But he gives that to us. He gives himself to us. He gives us his peace.